you would open in your Bible to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 33. We've been looking over the last few weeks at the last couple of chapters of Mark. Mark focuses on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life in chapter 14 and chapter 15. And we've come to the uh, the conclusion of Jesus' life uh, to his death in this passage. And then next Sunday, we will look at uh, the sequel, his rising from the dead. Uh, so let me read just a relatively short paragraph this morning, but a very important paragraph, beginning at Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. And when the sixth hour, uh, that is noontime, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Have you ever looked out upon the world and seen that every trace of God's loving and merciful presence had vanished. And all that was left was darkness, chaos, emptiness, and evil. Have you ever felt not only mistreated by other people, but even forsaken by God himself? Not everyone in the world has felt this way. Many people have always sensed God's presence in one form or another. In the beauty of nature, in the love of friends, in the mystery of human life, in the words of the scriptures, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, many people have testified to God's presence and God's comfort, even and especially in the hardest of times. But even very devout Christians throughout church history have written about the dark night of the soul. A season when all feeling and affection for God, all satisfaction from sensing his presence seems to vanish away. And of course, many people outside the church tell stories, not so much about coming to faith in God and Jesus Christ, but about losing whatever faith and hope they once had. Some people call it deconstructing or deconverting. For some people, faith in God has been eroded by persistent, unanswered questions. Once, trusting a good and powerful God seems simple and straightforward, but now God seems distant, abstract, hidden, incomprehensible. 
For other people, hope in God has been extinguished by persistent unanswered prayers, prayers for a broken marriage to be restored, for a loved one to be healed, for a job prospect to materialize, for relief from unrelenting stress, for companionship instead of loneliness, have yielded no tangible improvement. The heavens seem like rafts. Does God exist at all? If he is there, does he care? What does the Bible have to say to those who feel not only wronged by other people, but even forsaken by God himself? In verse 34 of the passage we just read, Jesus Christ cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a profound cry, and it speaks to this question that many people would ask. Now, over the last few weeks, we've looked at the events leading up to Jesus' death, and we've seen how Jesus especially was mistreated by other people in numerous ways. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his inner circle, one of his twelve disciples. Then he was abandoned by ten of the other twelve disciples. Then Peter, the chief disciple, the one who had promised to stay close to Jesus, even if all others would desert him, Peter then denied him three times that very night. Then Jesus was falsely accused before the council of religious leaders. Then he was condemned to death by the Roman governor, humiliated and crucified. Everyone turned against him, and Jesus was left utterly alone. But what we see in these short verses we read this morning and in Jesus' last word that Mark's records, spoken from the cross, is that Jesus did not only experience betrayal and condemnation and rejection and humiliation from other people, he also experienced the judgment and wrath of God poured out on him. Jesus felt, and in one sense he actually was, forsaken by God. That's the first thing that Mark wants us to see in this passage. Verse 33 and 34, Jesus felt, and in one sense he was, forsaken by God. Look at verse 33. Uh, when the sixth hour, that is noon, had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. So for three hours in the middle of the day, there was darkness. Now this was not a solar eclipse, because a solar eclipse only happens when there's a full moon, a new moon. Uh, but Jesus was crucified during Passover, and Passover starts when there's a full moon. So you can't have a solar eclipse during Passover. Now, could God have sent a dust storm or something like that to cover the land with darkness? Perhaps. But in the Bible, when unnatural darkness, not a solar eclipse that occurs every once in a while naturally, but when unnatural darkness covers the land in the middle of the day, it's a sign of God's final judgment. At the beginning of creation, what was the first thing that God did? He spoke light into the darkness. He spoke order into the chaos. He spoke life into existence. But when God intentionally turns the light into darkness, God is visibly demonstrating that he is turning away from his creation. He's turning away from his stubbornly rebellious 
people who have rejected his word time and time again. He's giving them over to their own devices, giving them over to their own destruction. So in the book of Exodus, when Pharaoh had rejected God's word time and time and time again, when he refused to let the Israelites go, as one of the final plagues, the next to last, God sent darkness over the whole land of Egypt. It says it was a darkness that could be felt. And later on, about 800 years before Jesus, the Hebrew prophet Amos spoke of a coming day of God's judgment when God would remove his merciful presence from his stubbornly rebellious people. And it says this in Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. I will make it like the morning for an only sun, and the end of it like a bitter day. That's the kind of darkness that Jesus experienced. When darkness covered the land, unnatural darkness covered the land in the middle of the day. It was a sign of God's final judgment. And in verse 34, after three hours of that darkness, Jesus cried out in the words of the psalm that we read earlier, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus Christ experienced when he hung on the cross was far more crushing and far more overwhelming than anything that you or I or any other human being has ever experienced. Let me give just three reasons why what the forsakenness that Jesus experienced was far more crushing and overwhelming than anything we've experienced. First, it was utterly undeserved. Sometimes, if we feel left alone by God or forsaken by God, the problem is not that God has inexplicably abandoned us. The problem is that we have abandoned God. We knowingly disobeyed his commands or, and blamed him for the consequences of our own foolish choices. Even if we're not primarily at fault, many times we've at least contributed to the mess that we find ourselves in. But what Jesus experienced here was utterly undeserved. He did nothing to deserve anything like what he was experiencing. He never disobeyed any of God's commands. He was faithful and obedient, not only in his outward actions and words, but also in his thoughts and desires. Through his entire life, he's the only completely righteous sufferer who ever lived. So it was utterly undeserved. But second, it was utterly unprecedented. Sometimes people who feel that God has forsaken them, they look back, perhaps wistfully or perhaps cynically, on a time when their faith seemed simple and straightforward, when they felt the closeness of God, when they sensed the presence of God. But Jesus Christ could look back not just on a lifetime of experiencing God's closeness and presence, but on an eternity when he had never experienced anything else. He was the eternal Son of God. He had known the love of His Father. He had seen His Father face to face from eternity past. They had enjoyed uninterrupted communion even before the world was created. Jesus, the Son of God, had delighted in His Father's presence, in His Father's love, in His Father's work. 
He had never known a time when he didn't sense and know that merciful and loving presence. And that presence and that voice had accompanied him throughout his earthly life. So when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River at the beginning of his public ministry, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a cloud or like a dove. And the Father's voice said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then in the middle of his ministry, when Jesus was, went up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured and he started to shine with dazzling glory, the cloud of God's presence descended, and once again the Father's voice spoke. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So Jesus had heard the Father's voice affirming him as his beloved son. But here, Jesus cried out. He cried out in agony. He cried out in anguish. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was no response. There was no encouraging word from heaven. There was no reassuring sign. There was only darkness. The darkness descended and God the Father remained silent. It was utterly unprecedented. And third, it was utterly isolating. You know, sometimes people look back on a time when they didn't sense God's presence. But in hindsight, they realized that God was there with them through the presence of faithful and compassionate friends. People who came alongside and walked alongside and brought a meal or lent a listening ear or simply sat and stayed for a while. People who understood their agony and shared their burdens, however imperfectly. But when Jesus cried out here, there were no friends who came along and listened. There were no compassionate people who understood or sympathized even partly with what he was going through. No disciples shared in his agony. The only response to Jesus' cry was in verses 35 and 36 from the bystanders who completely misunderstood him. They thought he's calling for the prophet Elijah. Now Elijah was a famous prophet in the Old Testament who had done some miracles, and he was one of only two people who were taken up to heaven without dying. And so some people in Jesus' time thought that Elijah would come and help people in crisis. And so they thought Jesus is calling on Elijah to come and help him and rescue him and take him down from the cross. In Aramaic, Elijah's name is pronounced Eli. Uh, but in verse 34, Jesus cries out to God, Eloi. So their names sound familiar in the language Jesus would have spoken. And so, in some sense, the misunderstanding is understandable. But somebody who heard it ran, filled a sponge with sour wine. That was sort of a, uh, a common thirst-quenching drink back then. Uh, it was literally a little bit of wine vinegar mixed water down with water. Sounds a little strange to us. Uh, but it was sort of like the Gatorade of the ancient world. Uh, and uh, it was a common drink that laborers, uh, uh, day laborers, would, would sort of bring with them. 
It did not have a high alcohol content. It was mostly watered down. So someone ran and filled a sponge with this thirst-quenching drink, and they thought if Jesus drinks a little of this, he'll last a little longer, and maybe that will give Elijah time to come and rescue him. But that's not at all what Jesus was asking for. Jesus wasn't calling out to Elijah. He wasn't asking to be taken down from the cross. He was calling out to God even as he hung there. He was crying out to God even as he felt forsaken by God. So that's the first thing we see. Jesus felt, and in one sense he was, forsaken by God himself. But the second thing that we see is that despite feeling, and in some sense being, forsaken by God, Jesus continued relying on God and carrying out his will all the way to the end. You know, many times when circumstances are deeply unfair, and they sometimes are, when other people have mistreated us, and they sometimes do, or when we feel that God has turned his back on us, many times we, we become bitter. We become cynical. We become withdrawn. We become harder to deal with. Maybe we have a pity party. Or maybe we collapse in despair. Or maybe we burst out in vengeful anger. Get somebody back, even if it's not the one who hurt me. But Jesus did none of those things that we often do. Even in his most bitter agony, Jesus continued relying on God. He remained steadfastly committed to his God-given mission. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out in anguish and bewilderment. Why was he, the innocent Son of God, suffering in this way? Because he was taking our place. He was bearing the awful punishment of our rebellion against God. He was enduring the hell that we deserved. He wasn't just suffering physically. He was also suffering spiritually in a way that goes far beyond what we will ever fathom. One person wrote, Jesus entered into the state of God-forsakenness from which sinful humanity needs to be rescued. Or the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as an old hymn says, We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered. That's why Jesus felt the crushing weight of darkness and forsakenness descend upon him. But even in the midst of that darkness and forsakenness, he held on to the word of God. One person wrote, he will not let God go, but dares to cling to him and to name him still my God. Jesus wasn't rejecting God. 
in the time when he felt most forsaken by him, he called him my God, even as he asked that question. Jesus quoted the first line of the psalm that we read earlier in the service, but Jesus wasn't just echoing the first line of the psalm. Jesus knew that whole psalm. And he was identifying himself with the whole psalm. Because as we heard, maybe you noticed as we read some of it earlier, uh, the psalm is written from the perspective of a righteous person who is suffering in agony, who endures excruciating torments, but who continues to rely on God all the way through. Now, if you read that psalm for the first time and you had no idea who wrote it or when it was written, you might even think that it was written by somebody to describe what Jesus endured on the cross because it describes it so accurately, so powerfully. Uh, but it was written a hundred, a thousand years before Jesus. Again, it's one of these things you can see uh, some of the prophetic texts in the Old Testament that are amazingly fulfilled in Jesus. Right? But it describes Jesus' suffering so accurately that the physical pain, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. That describes the physical pain that Jesus endured. But it also describes the humiliation that Jesus endured in verses 7 and 8 of the psalm. All who see me mock me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And the forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. All of those verses describe what Jesus suffered on the cross. But the psalm also describes uh, the writer's continued reliance on God. It also describes how Jesus continued to trust God and rely on God and carry out God's will through it all. It says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. You may be trusting you, even at my mother's breast. Oh Lord, do not be far off. Come quickly to my aid. So Jesus cried out in the words of this psalm, in utter agony and in persevering trust and obedience. You see, Jesus looked out upon a world from which every trace of God's loving and merciful presence had vanished. And he persevered in obedience to God's will and in love for us. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, wrote this. He wrote, The kingdom of darkness and evil is never in greater danger than when a human being, no longer feeling any desire, but still utterly committed to do God's will, looks out on the world from which every trace of him has vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, but still obeys. He said this obedience is the supreme canceling of Adam's fall, the movement by which we retrace our long journey from paradise, the untying of the old hard knot of distrust and disobedience and divine judgment in which the human race is bound up. 
You see, long ago, Bible tells in the beginning of Genesis that Adam and Eve stood before a tree in paradise. And when Adam and Eve looked around, they had every reason to believe that God loved them. They had every reason to believe that God was good. They had every reason to believe that God was powerful and real. They had every reason to trust in his provision because he had given them a, a wonderful garden and he had said, eat freely from any tree. It's all yours. There's only one tree that's exclusively reserved for me as a reminder that I own the garden and I need the garden. And yet Adam and Eve stood before that one tree and they chose to distrust and disobey the God who had made them and who had given them everything they could ever want or need. They wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to be the center of the universe. And they plunged the world into ruin and destruction as a result. And all of us have followed in one way or another in the path that they took. And so Jesus Christ came into that, this world, and he hung on a tree. And he looked out from that tree, and all the humans had forsaken him. And it even seemed that God had forsaken him. But he trusted and obeyed God all the way to the end. You see, he came to reverse all the sin and rebellion that began with Adam and Eve and that has continued with every one of us in one way or another. Jesus felt that in one sense he was forsaken by God, but he continued relying on God all the way to the end, and because he did so, this is the third point, the way into God's loving and merciful presence is now open to us all. Jesus began by quoting the first line of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where the psalm begins, but it's not where the psalm ends. As we saw, the first two-thirds of the psalm describes the suffering of the righteous one. The last third describes his victory and his achievements and his glory. So, verse 24 says, God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried out to him. Jesus felt forsaken by God, and in one sense he was, because he was bearing the judgment and wrath of God on our behalf. But in another sense he wasn't, because it says, God has not hidden his face from him. The Father saw what Jesus was going through. And the Father heard. And of course, the cry would be answered on the third day when God raised him from the dead. But then that psalm goes on to say, all the ends of the earth will remember in terms of the Lord. And the last verse says this, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Yes. Jesus held onto the promise that despite all appearances to the contrary, despite the undeserved and unprecedented and utterly isolating forsakenness that he was experiencing, Jesus held on to the promise 
that he would ultimately accomplish his purpose as the psalm had foretold. That he would ultimately be victorious because his heavenly father would vindicate him on the other side. So if you go back to Mark, Jesus cries out two times with a loud voice. The first time, he cries out in the first word of the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second time, verse 37, it says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus said with his final loud cry, but what he does show us is the tone. It wasn't a whimper. Jesus didn't go out with a whimper of despair. He went out with a shout of victory. He uttered a loud cry and then breathed his last. And this was very unusual for a crucified man because normally crucified men uh, died by gradual suffocation. They could barely hold themselves up long enough to breathe. And they would sometimes drift in and out of consciousness. And if they said anything, they would almost certainly be cursing their tormentors. But Jesus went out with a cry of triumph. And if you read the Gospel of John, John tells us what he said in that last word. He said, it is finished. It's the same as the last word of that song. He has done it. Jesus spoke the first word of the song and the last word of the song to show that he had come to suffer that agony and to accomplish that victory. One person wrote, his death was as extraordinary as his life. You see, Jesus' identity was revealed and his mission was accomplished not only by what he did during his lifetime, but by how he died. He offered himself on the cross as a perfect sacrifice on behalf of all sinners who would ever turn to him. And Mark shows us in verse 38 and 39, Mark shows us two immediate and wonderful results of how Jesus died. First, verse 38, says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now that curtain in the temple was not like any curtain in this building. That curtain in the temple was over 40 feet high and it was several inches thick. It separated the most holy place, the place where God dwelt, from all the other places in the temple where people could come and go. This was not a curtain that you could breeze by or duck around or accidentally tear. It was a permanent barrier representing the separation between a holy God and an unholy people. But Mark wants us to see that because of what Jesus did on the cross, the way into God's holy and loving and merciful presence is now open to us all. Amen. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the way into God's loving and merciful presence is open to us all, and verse 39 shows the second result which builds on the first. The centurion, which was the Roman police
police officer, the military officer who was overseeing the execution of Jesus and the other criminals, he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for over a year with some breaks. But this is the first time in the entire Gospel of Mark when a human being recognizes and explicitly says that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus testified before the religious council about who he was. They said, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And he said, I am. And their response was condemnation and mocking. And then Jesus testified before the Roman government about who he was. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered. And then the response was more condemnation, more mocking. And then verse 34, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's the response from the bystanders? Misunderstanding. Complete misunderstanding. You see, only after Jesus breathed his last, in verse 37, do we see the first positive response from a human being. You see, Mark wants us to see that Jesus had to die in the way that he did to accomplish his mission and to reveal his identity to the world. And look who it is. Who gets it? It's not one of Jesus' disciples who's the first one to get it. They had all run away a long time ago. It's not someone who had studied the Bible for years and years and had all this religious background and upbringing. It's a pagan Roman police officer. The guy responsible for supervising the execution squad. This guy had seen plenty of ugly deaths. He had heard plenty of cursing and cries of despair, but he saw that Jesus was different. He heard Jesus cry of triumph, it is finished. He saw that in this way, Jesus breathed his last, and he concluded, truly this man was the son of God. You see, the way into God's presence is open for all of us. Even for the Roman centurion, the last person that you might have expected to get You know, maybe you're hearing this message and a lot of this seems new to you. Maybe you feel like, wow, some of this stuff is pretty deep and I'm not even sure I get it all. But this Jesus guy, he's the real deal. He's legit. Friend, if that's you, the way into God's loving and merciful presence is open for you. Draw near to God through Jesus. He was forsaken so that you could be forgiven. Come to Him. Or maybe you have felt, maybe even now you do feel forsaken by God. Maybe you've lost your faith. Maybe it's been severely wounded. Maybe you can put on a good face in public. Nobody else would guess. But on the inside, you've lived in a dark place for a long time. Do you see that on the cross, Jesus experienced a forsakenness far more profound than anything you have ever experienced? If you're drowning in the depths of the ocean, 
it will do you no good if someone is swimming on the surface and yelling down at you. The only thing that will save you is if someone can go deeper than you and has the strength to pull you up to the surface. And Jesus Christ is eminently qualified to do that. No matter how much or how deeply you have felt that God has turned his back on you, Jesus has gone far deeper. And he can grab hold of you and lift you up to the surface. So cry out to him. Hold on to him. Let him hold on to you. Unite your sufferings with his, and you will one day experience a resurrection like his. Let us pray. Let me invite you to pray with me in response to two passages of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Lord Jesus, I'm beginning to see what you did for me on the cross. Truly, you are the Son of God. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Spirit. Help me to trust and obey you. Second, for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, let me read these words from Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. Give us, O Lord, through Christ, the endurance that we do not have within ourselves. That even in our darkest hour and our most bitter days, we may not grow weary or lose heart. May we know that you have gone before us. May we look forward to the joy that you have promised for all who love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.